0: CEO of NetWomen, where we inspire, support, and include women from all over the world to get to the top. Our mission is the 50-50 gender split and to close the gender and ethnicity gap, create equity, celebrate equality. I'm also the CEO and founder of Mindset by Pinky, where I help people overcome imposter syndrome and limiting beliefs through NLP and hypnosis to break the glass ceiling, you can book your discovery call with me by following the link at the end. Every month we'll be bringing you our latest updates from NetWomen and our community. We'll be having chats about stories we have found particularly newsworthy and giving our opinions on them. We have a variety of speakers joining me each month from the NetWomen community and having those conversations we don't normally talk about. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Rupinder Kaur, who's the CEO and founder of Asian Women Mean Business. Welcome.
1: Hi, Pinky. Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, it's such a pleasure to have you on this. I'm so excited to hear about your story and your journey. Um, just quickly, I just want to know very, very quickly, in 30 seconds or less, what? how did you get to where you are today?
1: So my background is in psychology and human resources. That's what I did my, de- my degree and my master's in. I spent uh, 15 years in the corporate HR world and realized very quickly that there weren't many people that looked like me. Um, and here's the thing. Sometimes you have to, sometimes you're looking for a seat at the table and sometimes you have to create the table. And that's effectively what I did with Asian Women Mean Business. I created the community that I was looking for um, to give others the support and the coaching and the mentoring that I would have loved to have had quite early on in, in middle of my career.
0: That's amazing. Um, I absolutely love that idea and being a South Asian woman myself, I know how difficult it was for me growing up in a very white world and being the first generation born in the UK after my parents moved over and it's probably a very similar story for you. Um, Let's go back a little bit to that point in your life. What was it like for you growing up in the UK? Were you first generation born?
1: Yeah, I was. So I was first generation born to two young migrant, um, South Indian migrants who came to Wolverhampton. (laughs) Yeah. which is where my dad had his family and I'm the eldest. Um, My parents were really young when they had me. My mum was 20, my uh, my dad was 22. They were, both of them were blue collar workers. They worked in the the factories um, that were very prevalent in the Midlands at that time. And so I grew up in in Wolverhampton as part of a large extended family, as part of a large South Asian, particularly a large Punjabi Sikh community that we belong to, um, with very much a patriarch of the family, which which was my my dad's uncle. And it was an interesting time. It was really interesting growing up in the 80s and 90s and what um, young girls and young women were told that they can and can't do. And... um, so I was always told that, you know, it was OK to go to university, but it had to be a local university. I had to live live um, live at home. Um, but growing up, it was very interesting because the gender divide was really, really obvious in, in my family. So it was really obvious that there were certain things like my, certain things my brother could do, my cousins could do. There were certain things that we couldn't do. And I think I've always been a bit of a rebel and I've always kind of pushed back and I've always asked the questions why can't I? Why can't we do this? Why is there a difference? And the answer that used to frustrate me the most is the it's always been done this way. And I just didn't, I didn't buy into that, I didn't accept that. Um, so when the opportunity came to go to university, I, <laughs> I ran, but not very far, because I went from West Midlands to East Midlands. Because I think I was just too scared to go any further. I was just like, oh, well, I I know I want to leave the West Midlands. I'll go to the East Midlands. So I went to Nottingham. Um, And, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, I just I don't know why I didn't I didn't dare to dream bigger. I didn't dare to dream um, to have bigger aspirations and hopes for myself. And I think that's definitely I was definitely a product of my upbringing and my environment.
0: Yeah, I agree. I'm similarly um it kind of brings back a few of my memories um i was so wrapped up in cotton wool and protected as a girl and you know girls don't do that was always the phrase you know and i used to love playing football i used to love riding bikes i used to go out all the time with my brother and his friends because Dolls and playing with my nails and my hair was not something I wanted to do. And that is so gender specific. I wanted to go out, run around, play, um, you know, in sand, get filthy, come home. And I absolutely loved doing that. And um, I had zero interest in beauty, makeup, wearing skirts, hated wearing dresses. and. It used to drive my parents insane. I think they were thinking throughout my childhood, what the hell have we done wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Like what on earth have we created? (laughs) Um, Did you, have you ever had any moments where you thought, and you mentioned this and I had the same thing. So I've got a younger brother who got everything under the sun and he was just, it was a different story for him. He could go out whenever he wanted. He could do whatever the hell he wanted. And when he went to university, no one phoned him and, and rang him every day to ask him how it was. Um, did you have any experiences like that?
1: Yeah, all the time. And it used to be so frustrating. Um, and I, I remember, and this this is an irony given the way I look now and the fact that I, I came into my faith as an adult, but you know, I grew up being told that um, Sikh girls don't cut their hair, but boys can, which is the complete opposite to what our faith tells us. Um, and that there was a a sense of of um, having to behave in a certain way. The whole concept of, you know, the, the the honor being placed on the daughters, on women in our community, about how they behave. You know, I was constantly told that I laugh too loud. I show my t- and I have a big gregarious laugh that I show my teeth too much um there was con there there's always this sense of pressure to and there's no other way of expressing it other than dim dim my light and not just for me but I saw that I saw that with my cousins I saw that with my neighbors I saw that with other women in our community and it was always this sense of conformity don't stand out don't be you know we were all meant to be the gray pigeons no one was meant to be the peacock or the flamingo and it just fills me when i look back sometimes it fills i mean it fills me with sadness but equally i was when you don't know better you don't do better so that that was the norm but that i saw it as but i think there were definitely points where i would i would push against that and i was i was very very challenging and i think it really did it frustrate my parents in that why can't she just accept you know like all the others um like my my the others in our community my neighbors and I remember my neighbours had three girls and they were really conforming and they were really like, they did everything their parents said. And I think it really frustrated my parents that I wasn't like that. But I think from a young age, I just couldn't stand the sense of unfairness or injustice. So like this sense of a, why are you, why is he allowed to do that? And I'm not, and make me understand, help me understand. And this has really informed my parenting. Cause we don't do that with my children now. Like we, if we don't have an explanation for them, then we need to rethink what we're asking them to do and how we're asking them to behave. But I think with us and our generation, it was, you know, your parents' word was the law and you didn't go against that. And very often I did and they just didn't know how to handle me.
0: Yeah, that sounds so familiar.
1: (laughs) But look, here's the thing, right? I think that rebellion comes in handy because when I think about what I then went, went on to do and what I'm doing now... I think all the seeds of that was planted there, like in terms of pushing back, not accepting the status quo, about asking awkward questions, about not shying away, about not wanting to conform. So all of that, all of that resistance, all of that has held me in good stead. And I know you must feel the same as well with what you're doing as well. Like it kind of laid down, lays down the foundations for how you want to live your life and what you want to do as an adult.
0: Yeah, I think going to university really opened my eyes to firstly, being in a school of all white people, me being the only brown person, all white girls. So it was all girls school, pretty strict, pull your socks up, otherwise you have detention type school. Um, really itchy, woolly grey socks, by the way, right up to the knees. Ugh, horrible. Um, but we we had to do it, right? It was part of being in an institution. That's what the school rules were, and you couldn't possibly break the rules. I went to university. or broke all the rules. I can tell you <laughs> it was, honestly, it was the best time of my life. And the reason for that is because I felt that freedom. I mm-hmm. felt, I felt like I was, you know, in a multicultural world and realized that actually there are so many different people and so many different backgrounds out there. And it really piqued my interest in I could go a little bit off the rails, quite honestly. I had to repeat my second year because I failed because I was partying too hard.
1: (laughs) Love it. And that's okay. It's okay to live life a little. It's okay to let loose. I I had a very different experience. So um, I went to a really terrible comprehensive school in Wolverhampton. It was an underperforming school. My parents are not educated. They uh, they they understand and value a sense of education. So they were their thing was they wanted um, their children to go to university. They weren't bothered. What university they weren't? You know, I didn't know about the Russell Group of universities until my final year at uni. Um, People around me weren't really going to university. Um, So I went to a local comprehensive. It was underperforming. The teachers had low aspirations of the children. It had, um, you know, there were children from a certain socioeconomic background, a very diverse background. And can I be honest, I hated it, Mm. hated it. And I look back now. And so some of the things about. Some of the limitations that I placed on myself didn't just come from my um, my community or my home life. It came from the from the educational institute that I was part of, and there have been quite a few times now where I've really thought about it and thought. And I have this conversation with my parents, and they're always like, "Oh, but you did great! Look how great you did! It all turned out well." And actually, yeah, it did turn out well. But there's always that moment where you're just like, mm, "What more could I have done? What more could I have been capable of if I was surrounded by people? If I was the and and that's why I think it really, like I said, it really it's really informed of the decisions that I've made about the people that I surround myself with now as an adult, the people that I surround my children with. Um because it it made, it made me realise how these limitations start to creep in to our vocabulary, our mindset, and in terms of what we think is possible for us. If we don't see people around us achieving stuff. If we don't see people around us breaking through, we don't think we're going to do it. And I re- I learned that lesson so much later on in life. Um, and that's, that's part of the reason why I love, love doing what I'm doing now, because I want particularly young women to understand that much earlier on than I did.
0: Yeah absolutely agree I never saw anyone that looked like me who was like me at the top ever and I wonder for you I know you went through corporate life for 15 years can you tell the listeners a little bit about what your experience was um in that in that institution
1: yeah, so I was in corporate HR for um, FTSE one hundred companies and global organisations as well, and it was really interesting. The particularly the first three years were really interesting because I had graduated from my my master's degree, so I had a you know had a BA in psychology, MSC in HR, and did really well academically, and then I went got right into the corporate world. And I, ha- I still had all of that old mindset around work hard, keep your head down, you'll get the tap on the shoulder about being promoted, or about being paid more, um, stay out of trouble, don't rock the boat. And so all of these messages that we get, and I think we particularly get as South Asian women and the whole concept around the, the model minority myth that I think us as South Asian women really conform to. And so that's why we tend to do really well in academia, because we can follow rules, we can turn out really good assignments and good exams, and we can we, we can do what's expected of us. But getting, going, getting into the corporate world was a shock to my system, because it took me a few years just to figure it out and understand that all of those things that we hold dear to us in the South Asian community, and all of those things that we're that we're praised for. So things around being humble um, and working hard and keeping our head down and keeping out of trouble and not blowing our own trumpet. All of those things do not work for us in the corporate world. And like, yeah, you're shaking your head. and, And then navigating that and thinking, oh, but I'm doing everything I've been told to do and I'm not getting promoted. I'm not getting that project. I'm not getting that pay rise. There's something awry here. It actually led to so much turmoil in me. And I see this turmoil in others because what we're told is going to work for us and what we've been told for decades is going to work for us. We then realise, actually, this isn't how it works. Um, and so then having to shift And I'm so grateful because I had the most incredible mentors really early on in my career, really established, incredible HR leaders who I'm still in contact with now, like, what, 18 years on or something, um, who really sat me down and said, this is how you navigate. This is how you need to understand. This is how you need to be able to advocate for yourself. I never knew. I didn't know how to advocate for myself. This is how you need to be able to negotiate. This is how you can share what you're doing in um, inside work and outside work so that it's in your favor. This is how you prepare for an appraisal. It blew my brain. And the minute I got it is the minute then my career just went like this and that's when i realized i remember being like i was 26 27 and i walked i was I, I was promoted into a regional hr um head of hr role for the southeast and i walked into this meeting room and i walked in and everyone else in that meeting room was was a white man over the age of 50 and and this was very early in my career i started in in um in the construction infrastructure industry and i can i just remember like i remember that feeling of fight and flight just flooding me like I just remember I was the only woman I was the only woman of color I was the only woman who was under 30 everything like imposter syndrome my insecurities my self-worth everything that, I, that I've shared about um you know being from a working class family in the midlands not going to a prestigious university not going to a great school everything came out uh, and really having to talk to myself then in that moment and really leaning on my mentors to be like no I'm here for a reason. And what I'm bringing to this table, none of these people can bring to the table. And all the stuff that we know now to be true, you know, that we know and that you talk about, Inet Women, that organisations that have diverse boards, that have women, that have diversity are always going to outperform. Because there is that diversity of opinion, of thought. Um, At that time wasn't there, but I knew that to be true. So being able to demonstrate that and talk about that. Oof, it was a roller coaster. It really, really was.
0: That sounds, I mean, it's a stereotypical situation that you've described there with the all-white male board. Um, did you ever once did you ever think at that point when you walked into that room, geez, I really feel like I've been set up to fail here?
1: Um I didn't I, I didn't feel like that. How I I really did what happened for me was imposter syndrome really kicked in. So what really kicked in is I don't know if I belong here. I don't know if I'm um, intelligent enough, bright enough. I don't know if I've got enough about me to, to sit at this board. Um, and also, you know, all the things that we know in terms of building a rapport and building a relationship. And that's so important to me. To be able to navigate that when you're working with people um, who are, you know, 40 years older than you are at different stages of life, have been and, you know, have been at different institutions who have been at some of the best boarding schools in the UK, who are part of the institution, who speak the language. It's, you know, these are the things that are very, very triggering in terms of imposter syndrome. So it wasn't it was never a sense of I've been set up to fail. It was more a sense of I don't belong, fight or flight. How am I going to, like, how how do I navigate this? What is it that I do? Um, and it really, for me, it really triggered and pushed a lot of buttons around my own insecurities and some of the things that we've talked about here. So it was just trying to understand that and making sense of that and also understand that a lot of that stuff is my stuff, that I need to take personal accountability and responsibility for. Um, but, it, yeah, it was definitely, I mean, it's it still... It's really funny because I can, every time I talk about it, even now I can picture that scene and it, it's still, the adrenaline still, my heart still paces, the adrenaline still kicks in. Um, and there is something still about that moment that feels like a pivotal moment for me.
0: What made you um, overcome that feeling? And, and you mentioned it already by really tapping into that reserve of confidence that you had that you deserve this how did you then build that rapport and get to really be respected heard um, listened to and supported in that environment
1: so I think I was really um lucky uh, and I'm very conscious about using that word actually because I know lots of women use that word but I, I had a really great relationship with the two mentors that I had in that organized. And they, they were champions of mine. They were advocates of mine. So it, it, it was brilliant to have that real safe space and that to go to and talk about and share. And, and really what I found in that role, what I had to do was that you always need something to almost hang your hat on that you can hold onto. And for different people, it's different things. So for me, it was, my education the fact that I had these letters after my name the fact that I I you know I went through a very rigorous interview process to get that role um, I was able to very quickly identify within the board a couple of people that I could build a relationship with and I'm naturally really curious about people I love learning about people I love understanding them I love understanding what you know what is it that makes you tick what is it that motivates you um, so understanding that about them and having those relationships and really taking the time to understand that this was a marathon and not a sprint and that I was going to have to put some time, effort in um, and energy into building those, building those relationships and really preparing myself. So what I found, found myself doing was really preparing for those board meetings, really understanding the, you know, what was what were some of the most important things that they needed to see and hear from me. Um, the other thing was about, you know, you're saying about get about being respected. It was about making some really difficult decisions. So in, in that organization, we were going through a, a large restructure. So that meant we had to make some really, really difficult decisions. And being able to show that I wasn't, a, I wasn't afraid of them making those decisions, I was able to partner with them a, and give them an alternative. It really, really helped.
0: That's really useful. So if someone is listening to this right now, what advice would you give them about this situation? Being the only woman, and woman of color as well, in a boardroom, walking in, feeling that sense of being an imposter, feeling like you don't, you're not enough to be there. What advice would you give them?
1: So I would say, just take a moment and ground yourself and remind yourself why you are there. And take an objective moment at, do, at doing that. So I like, I sometimes I just do little things like I'll read through my CV and just all the accolades and all the achievements. And like, yeah, this is me and this is what I'm bringing to the table. So that's always a re- just anything that grounds you and roots you. I love the work of Amy Cuddy. And I think I've heard you reference that before as well. And the whole concept of power poses. And I, the the way that our body and mind can respond together, and 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 so I do that. I do them now. I do them. You know, I do the power poses, um, but also just take the time to get curious about the people that we're working with. Just as I had, I just as they may have made a you know a stereotypical analysis of me or made judge. I made judgments of them. You know, I made. I'm making judgments now. I walked in. It was a board full of white men over fifty. That whole thing about male, pale and stale. But the minute I got curious and just wanted, I started conversations and started to talk about them. People love to talk about themselves. So this is when you really need to evidence really great networking skills and and rapport building skills, talking to people, understanding, you know, how they got to where they got to, what are some of their key learnings it will give you real insight into what it is that they want and what it is that they want to achieve. And my thing in terms of my corporate career has always been, where do you want to get to? Where does this organisation want to get to? Where does this department want to get to? What is my part in that? And how can I make sure that we get there? So that, you know, usually when we give people what they want and we can demonstrate that, they, they you know, they're much more receptive to building that relationship with you.
0: Great advice. I'm sure that's going to be very useful to our listeners. Um, what was your turning point then? Because obviously you're not doing that anymore. You've now got a fantastic business. What made you do that? What made you change? I, and I know we were having this conversation earlier. What was the dis? What was that switch that went and you just went? Yeah.
1: So, um, so when I when I was in that head of HR role, I looked around and I was just like, where are, the, where are the other women that look like me? Where are all the bright, capable, amazing women that I went to university with? What are they doing? And, you know, I had a bit of a shock and it really jolted me because I was head of HR. I was 26 and a half, 27. I was head of HR. Um, and when I was talking to my peers, they were like administrators, assistants, like really junior, but we'd, we'd but to the same uni, we had the same degree, we would same and as I was talking to them, what I understood was that the lessons that I learned, so the mentoring I'd got, the lessons I'd learned of understanding that there's um, a disconnect between how we've been raised and what we need to do in the corporate world, they hadn't got. So in my spare time, I started to coach and mentor and started to support. And my passion has always, always, always sat with South Asian women. I feel like there's not enough of us um, fulfilling our potential. i I feel like once we do that we're going to see such a seismic shift in society in business in politics and in all of these areas so in addition to my all of my HR roles I was always coaching and mentoring on the side always and then the opportunity came when I went on maternity leave and had my daughter to actually decide to do it for myself and so that's when I shifted again and was like right this is something that I want to do for myself I want to really start to support South Asian women in terms of fulfilling their potential and some of that's shifted now over the years initially it was um, you know helping entrepreneurial women fulfill their potential and signposting them and supporting them but now I take a more holistic view I just I, I think whatever it is that you want to achieve whether that is in the corporate world whether that's in in business whether whether you that's just you reaching your full potential at home and within your personal life i want more south asian women to do that so that's what we do with asian women in business we're offering the community the support the coaching and mentoring to identify what it is that you want and then give you the confidence and courage and the capacity and capability to, to go out there and get it
0: love it that is so inspiring and your decision to follow your faith was that at the same time or did that happen after?
1: Um, it was all kind of simultaneously going on, I think, as I was stepping into um, more of my authentic self, understanding more about my my faith, understanding more about life, understanding about more about, actually, how do I want to live life? How do I want to be? Um, I started to get more into, into my faith and... And at the same time, I'm, I'm stepping into more of my authenticity. And I think more, more women were interested in that as well. Like in terms of how do you balance? And, and, you know, one of the biggest questions I always, always get asked even now is, did you see a difference in your career? Did you see like, you know, was, was, was there any setbacks in terms of embracing your faith and how you were perceived? And honestly, no, that wasn't the case at all for me. I, and if anything, actually, in the last seven years, seven years that I've I've been practicing, I've seen a direct correlation in terms of success. What and however you term success, so whether that's um, uh, a financial fit, no, number two that, whether that's awards, whether that's profile, where, or whether that's personal fulfillment, which is my my idea of success is freedom, is personal fulfillment. Ever since I've come into my faith, I've seen a direct correlation, and I think that would happen at any point that you decide to live authentically and live for yourself rather than you know what others tell us how we should live
0: yeah and I really want to tap into all of that but we're running out of time (laughs) but I've absolutely loved speaking with you and I just for one one thing that I would love for you to share uh, before we wrap up is what's one piece of advice you would give to your your younger self?
1: Wow. One piece of advice I would give to my younger self is um, don't let the limitations of others limit you.
0: I love that. Shivers. <laughs> That's amazing. And also, how do our listeners find out more about you, more about Asian women mean business? Because there's so many women out there, like you said. That don't get the equity to get to the positions of power that you have talked about so how do they find out where can we find you and how can they find out more about your business
1: thanks pinky well you just any search engine asian women mean business will be right there Decor, um everywhere linkedin twitter instagram we've got a really comprehensive website with blogs and podcasts and Lots of different things that we're doing on there as well. You can't miss us. Google us. You'll find us.
0: Omnipresent. Just <laughs> <like. Yes! laughs> Fantastic. Rupinda. thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy woman, winning awards and doing amazing things for Asian women. And I'm delighted to have you here and in, in our network and just enjoying your company as well so thank you
1: oh it's been an honor and a privilege thank you for having me
0: so that's our episode done thank you so much everyone for listening we really appreciate your support email us if you'd like to feature or if you've had any ideas at all at hello that's dot co not co.uk you can subscribe to our newsletter or sponsor us with our mission create equity celebrate equality you can let us know what you think, leave a review, shag, share, tag, Co, and find us on LinkedIn and Instagram just by searching netwomen. Also head to our website for our latest blogs and updates at netwomen.co and DI programs on netwomen.us. Book a discovery call with me, calendly.com slash netwomen. Thank you for listening. Bye.